writers were described in numerous ways. As we've walked through the book of Philippians, I think one of the ways that Paul has used is that of a, a soldier. Even though he hasn't specifically said, you know, be a soldier of Christ, he has used some imagery through this letter that is soldier-like. You know, um, and to be a soldier, you need to be disciplined, and to be a soldier, you need to have a goal. To be a, a soldier, you need to be well-trained. Uh, to be a soldier, you need to be able to serve the commanding officer without question. To be a soldier, you have a great deal of pride and honour in the one to whom you serve, whether it is your commanding officer, whether it is your country, whatever the cause may be. You see, Philippi was a, a colony that was, was founded by Roman soldiers. They had been at war for many years and and as they conquered the territory, Philippi was saturated by soldiers who had served well. That was part of the culture, so I think that's why Paul uses some of these terms because as the church formed and flourished out of this community, there would have been, I guess, many soldiers. We know uh, the Philippi jailer was one such and his whole family uh, came to faith. You see, and starting at 127, he uses some of these terms. He, he says, look, I want you as Christians to stand firm, to strive side by side. These are very military terms, aren't they? You, you get an image of when you're on the front line, standing side by side or in a foxhole with a, with a fellow warrior, a fellow soldier. And he, he says, I want you to be of one mind and of one spirit. You can't have divided goals when it comes to growth in your Christian life. You've got to be like a soldier. You've got to have the one goal. We're going to take that hill or we're going to take that city or we're going to take that front. He also used terms that if you are a soldier of Christ, then some things are going to uh, come by that particular profession. One is suffering. You know, soldiers suffer, right? If you're in battle, you are going to suffer. Why? Because your best friend may get shot in the head next to you. People you've grown to love in that military service will die for the cause of the fight. And so Paul uses this type of terminology and as he's encouraging them to, to stand firm, to stand side by side, realizing that they are suffering for Christ. Realizing that that is part of their growth and grace. Realizing that it's part of their refining process. Realizing that the suffering is actually ordained by God for their growth and grace. So today we've seen this, this, this imagery being used as he's exhorted and encouraged us to, to live a life worthy, live a life 
in a worthy manner as citizens of heaven, as soldiers of Christ. But Paul also uses another image. And this is the image we're going to look at today. He uses an image that is equally understood by the culture of Philippi, understood by this ancient community. And it's the image of an athlete. It's the image of running a race combined with the image of being a good citizen. So if you could turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 and let us read together, starting at verse 12. And this is sort of a starting in the midst of uh, his final argument, his final exhortation, not argument actually, it's his exhortation, it's his farewell comments that started in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, where he says, Finally, brothers, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. It's not an option. It's you must rejoice in the Lord. And then he he explains in these first 11 verses that to rejoice in the Lord is to have discernment and knowledge about what the right gospel is. He said, because some will come amongst you, some will try and come amongst you who will try and impose a whole lot of stuff upon you which is not gospel. Try and impose a whole lot of rules upon you. They'll try and think about their, their heritage. They'll try and think about their religious rights. They'll try and impose and enforce these things on you, but they're not correct. That's not where your hope lies. Your joy will be found when you have discernment and realize that your hope fairly and squarely lies in the cross of Christ. Your hope lies fairly and squarely in the fact that Christ's righteousness has been credited and accounted to you, to you who have put your faith and trust in Him. That's where your joy comes from. Your joy doesn't come from your circumstances. Your joy doesn't come from the fact that you're stuck in a dungeon, strapped to a Praetorian guard, as Paul would put it. Your joy comes from the fact that the gospel is being advanced and that your hope is firmly resting on the fact that Christ's righteousness is yours. And that's the only way of salvation. So rejoice in it, folks. Rejoice in it, you Philippians. Rejoice in it, you Canterbury Guardians. <laughs> Rejoice in the fact those who have and are followers of Christ, your hope is in Christ. Not in anything else. Rejoice in that. Sorry, we were going to read, so we will read. <laughs> so this is where he comes to in in verse 12, chapter 3, now that, I, now that I have already obtained this, oh, sorry, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God 
in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. And let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. To be like uh, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we eagerly await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to the to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him also to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He changes the image. As he continues his farewell speech, he wants to impose, he wants to have etched on the minds of these men and women he loves in Philippi that they are to press on. He likens it to a race. He likens it to an athletic contest. And this is the way he is encouraging the saints. He uses the words like press on, straining forward, goal, prize, upward call. They all reflect an athletic imagery. Firstly, he clearly states he has not obtained the prize. Okay? You see that in, in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. So he, he throws it right out there. You are not already perfect. It is a progressive thing. Sanctification, a growth in Christ, is something that progresses day in, day out, day in, day out, as you fix your eyes on Jesus. One of the best pictures I've seen and heard of about this process of growing in Christ is you know, when you become a, a, a follower of Christ, right at the beginning, it's like being in a forest. Right? You have all, all these trees around about you and, and those trees could represent the things in your life that aren't godly. Right? The things in life that have been sown there by the flesh and, and now that you become a follower of Christ, the Spirit is going to sow different things, different trees, if you like. So as you walk through your life, these trees get cut down. The tree of pride, the, the tree of uh, self-centeredness, the, the tree of self-indulgence, the tree of sexual immorality, the tree of um, a divisive spirit. They get cut down. 
And as you walk towards, through the forest, things are clearing up. But you know what? Occasionally you've got to look behind you because those trees will start sprouting again. The stump will start having new growth because in your life, in the process of sanctification, you need to continually rest on Christ and His grace. So this is what Paul is reflecting here. He's saying, I'm not already perfect. And we would say, that is true because we live here on this earth. We are like Paul in this. We struggle with sin on a daily basis. Even though forensically, judiciously, we are declared righteous. That's the marvelous truth that we are declared righteous and God sees us through Christ's righteousness. But the fact is, we have yet to fully realize that. And this is where he's driving with us. He's saying, you will realize it one day. You will be freed from this body to a glorious body as we'll see later in the passage. You see, there is confusion, unfortunately, sometimes amongst those who follow Christ about this very thing. There's a movement that says, I am already perfected. There's a movement amongst Christianity that says, I am the, the, the perfect state that I'm to have, I already have. This is not the testimony of Paul. Read Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't. I need the Spirit in my life to progressively change me. And that's the point he's making here. I'm not perfected, but I'm going to press on. So what is the prize? What's the prize he's talking about here? He says, I press on to make it my own. I, I, I'm not perfect, but I, but I want to press on. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 14. I think the goal and the, and the prize is explained in verses 9 through 11 of the previous chapter. Well, actually eight. One of them is knowing Christ and the fullness of Christ. That's one of the goals and one of his prizes. The other thing is to obtain the resurrection like Christ has. So I think he's thinking through that. He says, this is what I want to press on towards. To know Christ in a fuller and deeper sense and to attain the resurrection because Christ has also resurrected. So when that happens, I'm freed from this body of sin. And he explains that further down in verse 20 and 21 where he says, I await, eagerly await the Saviour who will come. Who will transform my lowly body into His glorious body. And I'll be with Him. You see, to press on is an act of commitment. This is a command type language again and it's, it's this athletic thing. And to press on is two things that you must do. You must forget what is behind And you must exert and strain yourself and focus on what is in front. 
So to forget what is behind. Forget the nostalgia of the former life, the, the, the good old days. That's what Paul is saying. I want to forget the good old days of, of my life. You know, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, and a Pharisee and an Israelite and blameless to the law. I'm forgetting those things. I, they are of nothing. They are of loss. They are rubbish. So forget the nostalgia of the good old days because when you plant yourself in the good old days, you will paralyze yourself in terms of what God wants you to do in the future. You get that? If you're so focused on what happened in the past, you'll miss what God wants you to do in your future. So to press on is to forget what's happened in the past. But it's to exert yourself. Uh, it's to strain forward. I love this word here. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind me and straining forward to what lies ahead. This is full exertion. This is like watching the 100 meter sprint at the Olympics. If you're in the 100 meter final Olympics, are those eight competitors trying or not? <laughs> okay. As they crouch down on the starting blocks, is any of them thinking, uh, I used to run the 100 meters once? Um, yeah, I used to be pretty good at the 100 meters. I think I'll just jog. Because my past. You know, a past prowess will allow me to win this race without too much effort. No. If you watch closely those, those guys and girls who get down for these 100 metre finals and, and they crouch in the starter's position, what do you see? Probably today's age you see too much, but you see bulging muscles, you see tuned athletes, you see Men and women ready to give it everything over 10 seconds to reach the goal. They start low in the blocks and they explode towards the finish line. Every fibre of the athlete's being is straining to run faster. Every stride is designed to lengthen out as quickly as it can to maximise the speed across the ground. The athlete strains and exerts all in their efforts to reach the goal. And this is the imagery Paul is using here. He says, I want you to press in that way. I want you to consistently think about the goal, about your upward call, about your position in Christ. Because that's going to give you great joy. It will give you great joy and be a great cause for rejoicing. So as a Christian... We are to press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We are to set our sights on heaven 
and earnestly pursue with every sinew to God. Now, this imagery is unmistakable for this culture. See, in the classical Greek terms, it referred to a victor's prize. In the Isthmian Games, which was run annually, which was very close to Philippi, it was their Olympics of the time. To win a prize, you would receive money, you receive fame, you would receive free meals, uh, front row seats, the theatre in Athens. But all the athletes would be vying for the crown. The crown made of either olive or wood, laurel or ivy or pine or, or flowers. This wasn't a kingly crown that they were striving for, but rather one that was given that as a as a prize for winning the race. And what Paul is doing here is challenging them. He's challenging them in the same way that these contestants at the Isthmian Games were devoted to running the race. You too should be committed through the power of the Spirit of God to run the race that's set before you. So looking at this, how, how do you run the race? How do I run the race? They're penetrating questions, aren't they? The writer of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's fixing your eyes on the, the prize. Paul is reiterating this. He says, press on because you have a heavenly calling. I appreciate the songs this morning because it lifted my soul to the fact that one day we're going to be with Christ. One day He's going to call us home. And that's such an encouraging thing. And this is what Paul is asking us. How will you run your race? How will you maintain the focus on the prize? How will you continue to press on? And I think he answers those questions in the, the next few verses. You see, perfectionism isn't the issue here, but perseverance is. Okay? Perhaps using a 100 metre sprint is not the correct race to use. Perhaps we need to use the metaphor of a marathon. Okay? It's a 100 metre sprint, it's all over and done with in 10 seconds. A marathon is a long term goal. Perhaps we should use the term the ultra marathon. Who was the guy in Australia that ran from Sydney to Melbourne? Who was it? Cliffy. Cliffy, the ultra marathoner. He set his prize on the go he set his eyes on the prize, didn't he? Yeah, ran in his gumboots. <laughs> but he ran when no one else would run. Okay? He ran through the night, he didn't sleep, he ran. He wasn't the fastest, but he was the most consistent. 
Christian life is like that, folks. It's not about being fast. It's about being consistent and obedient. It's about setting your eyes on Christ. So, we run the race. But how do we run the race? He says in the next two verses, verses 15 and 16, that those of us who are mature think this way, and if ever anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So to run the race well, Paul says, you need to hold on to what you already know. Hold on to what you have already attained. Hold on to the fact that your sins are forgiven. Hold on to the fact that you are in Christ. Hold on to the fact that uh, you have knowledge and discernment. Hold on to the fact that you love and serve one another. Hold on to the fact that you have unity amongst yourselves for the sake of Christ. Hold on to the fact that Christ is your Lord and is exalted in glory. That's what's been attained. Why? Because Christ's death burial and resurrection. He also notes here, it's a really interesting verse, verse 15, that he's saying, okay, we hold on to these facts in verse 16, but in verse 15 he says, you know, as your maturity changes, as you think And notice the emphasis on thinking. Thinking relates to action. Thinking relates to consistency. We've seen this through the book, right? If you go back to chapter 1, verse 28, verse 27, one of the cries in Christian growth is to have one mind. In chapter 2, it's to be of the same mind. A full accord in one mind. In chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among you which is also in Christ Jesus. The mind is important in the process of sanctification. So as you think this way, and if you think in another way, don't be concerned because God is still going to work within you to mature you. That's what it's saying there in verse 15. But focus on what you have attained. Focus on the knowledge of Christ that you have. In other words, behave in a manner that's consistent with the truth that's already been received. That's his cry there. Hold true. Press on to the mark, run the race and hold true to what you know. See, correct thinking leads to right living and this is consistent right throughout this letter. And mature thinking leads to a life of joy. It leads to a life of rejoicing because you're in Christ. Then he further gives two more examples. Verse 17 through 19. He gives a positive example and he gives a negative example. He says, as you press on, as you, as you strive towards the goal, towards the high calling of Christ, there's two things I want you to consider. And Paul says, firstly, consider and imitate my example. What was Paul's example? 
I'm not concerned about my circumstances as long as the gospel is advanced, as long as the gospel is proclaimed. What was Paul's example? Oh, there's some other brothers there who are preaching the gospel out of rivalry. But I'm not concerned about that as long as the gospel is proclaimed. He wasn't concerned about the content of their preaching, he was concerned about their motive. That's what he says. He says, imitate me. Imitate Paul and the fact that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Imitate me. Whatever I had in my heritage, whatever I had in my past, I counted as absolute loss, as rubbish. A very strong term. For the sake of knowing Christ. So he says, this is the positive example. What I've been writing to you about, my dear, my dear Philippians, because remember, he loved these people deeply. He commended them well. This wasn't a church that was going off the rails. This is a church that needed further encouragement to press on. He says, imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So take great encouragement from fellow Christians who are walking well. Take great encouragement from that. When you see somebody walking well, encourage them. When you see someone walking well for the sake of Christ, follow their model. An example of that with Mark today. Stepping his foot out into an unknown environment but proclaiming Christ. That's an encouragement to all of us, is it not? It's encouragement to us last week as we heard Matt wrestle with the issues of a, a dear friend who took his life. But come with the realisation that God is sovereign. That's an encouragement. And that's what Paul is appealing to. Look at my example. You know me. That He knew them for the past 12 years. You've heard about what I'm doing. Take encouragement of that, but also look at the growth of others around you. That's the positive example. The negative example is those who shun the cross of Christ. And that's also the way we run the race because we look at those who shun the cross of Christ and realize the hopeless folly of that position. He says here, the enemies of the cross, and you can just see the apostles' heart and love for these people. He says, they used to be with us. As with tears, it's about the only time Paul uses tears. I, I think Paul was a pretty stoic sort of fellow. He's a bit like a Kiwi, right? Kiwis don't cry. We don't cry about anything, unless we lose rugby. But then we don't really cry. We, we smash things. <laughs> we smash things. Uh, so, um, he is, 
he is just pouring out his heart to these people and says, with tears I see the way I've moved to become enemies of the cross. What a terrible testament to be an enemy of the cross. And he gives us characteristics of what it means to be an enemy of the cross. Your, your God is their belly. They glory in their sin and shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. And the result is destruction. Don't forget the result here. An enemy of the cross has no salvation. An enemy of the cross will be destroyed. They're self-serving. They're unaccountable. And they're solely focused on the world's concerns. That's an enemy of the cross. They simply do not think about earthly things. Their minds are, are set on such things. And this stands in an absolutely pointed contrast to what Paul has been saying. Absolute contrast. He's saying set your mind on the prize of the upward calling of God. His mind is set altogether on Christ. Who for Paul is gain if he dies. See, they're enemies of the cross because it's the way they're living. They're rejecting the gospel. They are self-indulgent. And their future is assured. Destruction. But Paul weeps over them. We should too. We should weep over such enemies. So as we run the race, pray for our enemies. Pray for those who are enemies of the cross, that the Lord, through His Spirit, will break their hearts open. It's the only way of salvation, folks. The Lord, through His Spirit. I'm going to conclude here, and we'll pick this up next week. Next stanza. So what we have is a solid charge to press on. Press on. To press on. The catalyst for pressing on is the way of the cross for us. Is looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I want to give you an example of someone who did press on. And hopefully this is an encouragement to you. I'm going back to the Reformation. Since we're in the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, it's good to have examples from past giants of the faith. Somebody once said, all my friends are dead men. He was alluding to the fact that he had this myriad of hordes of books in his bookshelf that displayed the wonders of men who had walked the faith before. And this is one of those men who is a hero of mine. So let me give you an example. Where a man of God under extreme threat for his life recanted his beliefs. 
The year was 1556, and it was during the reign of Bloody Mary. Now, Bloody Mary, she hated Protestants. Now, I'm not talking just a sort of a like of a hate. This is a holy hatred, an unholy hatred, actually. She hated Protestants. So much so that she burned 288 Protestants at the stake in her, during her reign. That was only a five-year reign. And um, burning at the stake was a degrading and a painful death. Now, what it comprised of is the person would be sitting on the stake, they would start the fire at the base of the feet, they would have strapped around their neck gunpowder, so it was a slow and painful death because the fire would go up the, up the body and eventually hit the gunpowder and blow your head off. It's happened to 288 people that we know of. 100 died in prison before being burned. These men and women suffered great attack and persecution, both mentally, emotionally, relationally and physically, even to the point of death. One of these guys was Thomas Kramer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the, the head of the Church of England at the time, the head of the Protestant Church. Bloody Mary was a, a Catholic who hated Protestants with a passion. And uh, Thomas knew what the punishment for treason was because Mary was saying to Thomas, you need to recant of your belief in the Bible, recant of your belief in justification by faith, recant of the belief that it is by grace alone through faith alone, recant of the belief that the Catholic Church has nothing to do with salvation. So Thomas was put in this situation and he did recant. And he was put in, he was in prison at the time, but he recanted. Saying, okay, what I'm saying is wrong. So what Mary thought she would do, she would grab Thomas and bring him out into, a, into his church, which was at Oxford University, and say, we'd like you to speak to all your other folks, speak to them all, about your recantation, etc. She thought she was going to get some mileage out of this. But Thomas stood up. He stood up and he counted the cost, and this is what happened. When the trial took place, he was invited to address the church that resided in Oxford University. Mary was thinking that his reincantation would start the fall of the Protestant church in England. However, as Thomas addressed the church, he recanted his denial. So he recanted his reincantation. He stated that he had strayed from the truth, renouncing. This is what he said. The things written with this hand, contrary to the truth which he wrote, for the fear of death and to save his life. This statement would condemn him to the stake. He requested that when he came to the fire that his hand be burned first. Following is the testimony of what happened to Thomas when he was martyred. True testimony. Fire now put to him. Sorry about the old English, but this is good stuff. Fire now put to him. He stretched out his right hand and thrust it into the flame and held it there a good space before the fire came to any other part of his body. Where his hand was seen of every man sensibly burning, crying with a loud voice, he says, This hand hath offended. As soon as the fire got up, he was very soon dead, never stirring or crying all the while. Thomas Kramer, the hero of the faith. 
A man who counted the cost but looked for the price. He pressed on. He struggled with his own mortality. He struggled with his own fact that he had lied. But he pressed on. Folks, press on. No matter what your circumstances, look to Christ. Look to the promises He has given you. Look to the promises, the fact that one day you will be with Him. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I don't think we'll do our closing song. We'll just pray and then we can have some fellowship together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we all need to know and understand your great love and mercy for us. Father, we all need to know and understand that our heavenly home is a wonderful place to, to, to yearn for. Father, help us to press on to be men and women who do not swerve, to be men and women who fix our eyes on the finish line, to be men and women who do not get concerned about our circumstance, but fall into your loving arms and press on. We thank you that you empower us by your Spirit. We thank you that you enable us to persevere. Set our hearts and minds straight, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. Please enjoy some um, fellowship together.